It's Cape Ann Report, and I'm your host, Maureen Aylward. Our topic is Community Roundtable, where my guests will discuss important issues to them and also related to the community. My guests include Paul Lumberg, current City Council President and Gloucester City Council Councilor at Large, Catherine Schlichty, Attorney at Schlichty and Johnston PC, and um, Peter Dolan, Community citizen, Gloucester citizen. Gloucester. Citizen of Gloucester. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me at our first community roundtable. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks, thanks for inviting us, Maureen. It's, it's going to be a wonderful conversation, I think. So, uh, so for our viewers, what we're aiming for is each one of you will put forth a community issue that's important to you, and then all of you will discuss it, and then we'll move to the next one. So, Paul, you're sitting right next to me. Great. You're first. Well, I will start with... Um, a subject that's been very front and center in Gloucester, uh, and it, it's true in all communities in Cape Ann, but in Gloucester in particular, because it's it's affordable housing. And we just approved in our city the Fuller Mixed Use Venture, uh, which is going to replace what's the abandoned Fuller School with a development that includes the YMCA, but it includes 200 units of mark of of housing, 30 of which will be affordable. And the affordable housing is in a very important piece, both from a state and local um, legal standpoint, but also a community philosophy standpoint. And we are very excited to have such a big um, addition of affordable housing in Gloucester. That's fantastic. So uh, opening it up to all of you, let's def can we define affordable housing and what, uh, what do you think? Well, I, I think there's, uh, there's uh, two types of affordable housing, really. There's subsidized housing, which is sort of the housing that's run by the Gloucester Housing Authority, and it might be rental certificates or it might be housing developments such as that on um, Maplewood Avenue. And then there's affordable housing, which is a lot of uh, private uh, housing agencies like Harbor Light Community Partners or Action Inc. will... Um, own and operate housing that is affordable based on a working family's income. They set the rental mm -hmm. rates based upon the income that that family or individual household will be making and then make that rent to be uh, affordable to the individual. Because we have a real affordability problem in Gloucester. We have 40% uh, of the households in Gloucester pay more than 30% of their income in housing. Of that 40%, uh, t about 20% of them are paying 50% of their income in housing. And of that entire 40% group, half of them are seniors over the age of 62. So it's really an issue that we need to keep our eye on and try to keep producing uh, affordable housing that is meets the needs of our residents. And what do people think is a more reasonable amount to be spending for your shelter out of your income, 25%? Um, well, certainly not 30% yeah. because that has societal costs to it. I mean, if you're spending 30% of your income on housing, you don't, that puts you at a crunch for medical expenses, for home repairs, for food, <coughs> for um, extracurricular activities for your children. So I think that the HUD has sort of determined that 25% really would be like a maximum that you might want to mm -hmm. spend on your housing so that you have you know, uh, income left for other essential needs. Right, so, Paul. And, and, and yes, and so the, the community goal of affordable housing really is to provide 
sufficient housing at a at a uh, affordable price for working families. And this is when I say working families, there's a lot of technical um, definitions. My definition is is uh, two uh, uh, breadwinners in the family, uh, two spouses who are both uh, uh, working to raise their uh, families, and um, that's what this is all about. Is to so when you look at incomes and the kind of incomes people can earn who we want to be able to uh, to live in the community in which they work, that's a very important um, aspect. So right, teachers so, and firefighters and policemen and people who work on the production line at Gorton's and so forth, those people, we would like to be able to have housing that they can afford right here in Gloucester. Right. And people who have lived here for a long time, who the elders, it's impacting elders, right? So Definitely. I mean, we are very fortunate in that... Uh, our uh, planning department has produced a housing production plan. The and city of Gloucester. The city of Gloucester, yeah, yeah. has produced a housing production plan, which uh, looks at housing needs overall. I mean, we have uh, we need housing in in every category: single family homes, multifamily homes, market rate homes, and affordability. But uh, they spend a particular amount of time looking at affordability and steps that we can take to try to. In increase the amount of affordable housing or multifamily housing that we have. I think one of the things that they look at is in particular, we need to look at our downtown area mm -hmm. as a area that is prime to be able to receive from, you know, 300 to 500 more multifamily units right in the downtown area, which particularly is important for affordability in that you have a lot of amenities nearby. Right. Walkability. There's right. walkability. Yeah. Plus it also creates, I mean, let's not forget our, 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 our young people because we have an aging population in Gloucester. Yeah. By 2030, I think it's 58% <laughs> of the population is going to be 62 and older. And that has an economic Im impact on yeah, us. I mean, we does. want to be able to draw young people who are going to be an economic force for us and whatnot. They like small units downtown walkability, so yeah, that's um, all changing. So when you say it's a housing production plan, you don't mean it's not just a plan to build more housing and develop areas maybe that aren't developed. It's also about maybe changing the nature of existing housing stock. Um, well, it is like a widespread plan. Uh, it does particularly talk about the need to create and produce more housing. Yes, building more housing. I think it said by, you know. 2018, we needed 483 units of, of multifamily housing. And, and I think between 2010 and 2018, we <clears throat> probably got about 400 of those, right? 200 of them being mm -hmm. the, the fuller units. But um, it also looks at the need to maintain existing housing. We have, um, we have uh, uh, grant programs that help re rehabilitate and help people stay in their existing affordable homes that mm -hmm. might be needing in that might be in need of repair. We have you know first-time home buyer programs that help people get into homes that are already yeah. existing. Yeah. So there's kind of a multifaceted approach to it, but mm -hmm. it does have a big uh, focus on producing and creating more units in the city. How can people also find more information about? what's available and how did they how can they learn more about um, so the city's website is uh, getting more and more robust and uh, uh, people go to the city's website and you'll see the various departments under community development uh, you can click on there and there are several of the city's um, strategic plans for housing and economic development of their the housing production plan is one of several 
Um, one thing that Catherine mentioned that I'd just like to highlight is um, in terms of the location of housing is this mobility issue. Mobility is very important. Um, we are always looking to enhance our public transportation um, and uh, locating housing where people can uh, rely on public transportation is also very important. As a city, we don't, we're not housing developers, but we do facilitate those kind of plans mm -hmm. that are going to work together. So housing, transportation, work together. Great. Yeah. Well, I'd like to switch the topic now. Peter, um, throw out your topic. Well, one thing that I thought was worth talking about this week was, you know, I, I think a lot of people saw this, there was a headline in the paper earlier this week. The Gloucester uh, Daily Times. The Gloucester Times. Daily Times. Yeah. Um, that said the lottery is sending a windfall to the cities and towns. And I got curious and I wondered, is this for a lot of different reasons, is this money that was announced on Tuesday really a windfall to the city? And I think Paul had a good point about this, that we've actually known that some of this money was coming um, for a while. We were talking about this in the, the green room before we, <laughs> before we came onto the set. <laughs> right, Paul? We, yes. we knew this money was coming. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But it is, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worthy to note that our share of the lottery, ours, Gloucester's share of the lottery proceeds is over $4 million that we get from the state um, uh, this, this particular year. So it's somewhere in that neighborhood we've gotten for a couple of years. So uh, is each city and town's uh, share of the lottery proceeds based on what they spend on the lottery or what, what they have for sales of, of, on lottery tickets? Or is it just based on... My understanding Population. is that it's not that simple. It's not. It's not directly correlated that way. That there's a formula that takes into account um, property values in the city. Um, and that the the money goes from you buy a ticket and the money goes into a pool of money, and about three a little under three quarters of that money is paid back in prizes to the lottery winners, and that about twenty percent of that money actually comes back to the cities and towns in the form of local aid. And the remainder of the money is used to actually run the program to pay the people who sell the tickets and the people who manage the lottery system. Um, but about 20% of the money that's raised through lottery ticket sales comes back to the cities and towns. But the state has a formula for doing that. I don't know if it takes into account income. It doesn't directly take into account how many Sales. tickets were purchased. And I think that's something that I always think about when we talk about the lottery is that you know, one way to look at it, and it's not the only way to look at it, is that it is a way of taxing the people in the cities and mm. towns. It's the, the state <laughs> takes the money from us and then the state redistributes it somehow. And I think it's important to realize that we spend, and you can find this information out if you call up the lottery office, they'll tell you we spent about $24 million last year on the lottery, so we're getting back 20 somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of that. Um, but it's a big expense for the city. And I think if Paul and his colleagues on the city council announced that they were going to be instituting a new well, tax that was going to raise 20, take $24 million out of the city, we'd have our pitchforks out and our torches and yeah. we'd be marching up the city Paul. hall to talk about it. The thing about the lottery is it's a, if, if you're looking at it as a tax, it's a voluntary tax. In other words, <laughs> right, those right, people who right. participate in the lottery do so voluntarily. Right. And, um, you know, I guess that's, um, that's kind of a, that is a windfall right there because uh, it's just money that wouldn't come from anywhere else. So. Right. But there's a consequence, yeah. obviously, yeah. In, the, in the city. If, 
residents are paying $24 million into, or, or people who come here to visit and they're purchasing lottery tickets, there's, there's a consequence to that. There's, they're not purchasing they're something not, else. They're not purchasing they something else, purchase. but also uh, by participating in the lottery, it's a form of gambling. And right. I seem to recall that there you know, was a promise initially when the lottery went into place that those returned funds would go towards education or you know, gambling addiction clinics that might help people who have a, a, a problem or to address maybe some of the negative impacts of, of, of the lottery. But um, I suppose $4 million is, uh, to our general Very fund important. is, is uh, nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. Yeah. And it may make, you know, in the overall picture, you know, we, we tax people's property, we tax, we have meal taxes and sales taxes, and it may make sense in the overall picture. I just think sometimes we lose sight of that, that, you know, we think, oh, this is a, a windfall to the city. We just got $4 million. <laughs> well, we also spent some somewhere over $20 million to, to make this $4 million come back to us. And right. how that money got distributed is something we should be thinking about in the, in the bigger picture. Yeah. yeah, these kinds of things that come up and they're uh, just restructured in a way of thinking of it, it's so important to consider the money that's coming in, the money that's going out. Paul, did you want to say something? Well, I'm just, you know, thinking about the various sources of, of income that we have to run the city, you know, mm -hmm. and, and property tax is the, is the largest, but, but these other sources are, are really important. And the lottery, which before it existed, that money just wasn't there. Didn't exist at all. So it is, uh, it has been a, uh, a very big benefit to cities and towns because they didn't have it before the lottery existing. So I guess that there's no mechanism or consideration in place to take some of those funds that come in from the lottery and put it towards these uh, gambling addiction programs in Gloucester? Would the city even consider something like well, that? Well, the only, well, those programs, like any other public health program, are part of what our public health department does in terms of concocting what they have as their strategic plan and what are the issues that they think are most important in the city to address. And uh, gambling addiction has not been one of them. Um, it could be if, it, if they perceived it to be a, a real public health issue. Hmm. I think the bigger issue they're going to have is, is uh, education on the fact that uh, we now have legalized marijuana in, in, in the Commonwealth. And that's going to be an educational thing that Department of Health is going to want to get into. Yeah, there are always two pieces to these issues. You know, there's the issue of <laughs> do we do this in the first place? You know, are we comfortable? I mean, there, there was a time when there wasn't a lottery in Massachusetts or where marijuana sale wasn't legal and wasn't going to be taxed. And we make a decision that we're going to do these things. And then we also can think at the same time about how are we going to spread that money around? How are we going to redistribute this? This money, like for the lottery, comes in in a certain way. and it's the state has a way of doling it out to the cities and towns. The marijuana sales is another one that's mm -hmm. going to be taxed, and some of that money will come, we'll come back, back to the city. Correct. Yeah, Paul, can you update us while we're on this issue of, of retail marijuana sales, recreational marijuana, so, just briefly to touch on this? Yes, because so, it is a community issue. Right, and so the we, voters in the Commonwealth approved uh, the use of marijuana recreationally two years ago. It was, this is run a program run by the state. The, the uh, license to sell marijuana will be state licenses. It is, the state left it to the cities and towns to zone 
for where the shops will be located. Um, that is a precedent, uh, that's a precedent to uh, anyone getting a license to sell marijuana. In the city of Gloucester, we have now just passed the zoning for that, so we've got that piece in place, and uh, once that, the and that will take effect within 30 days, and then uh, applicants who wish to open stores in um, Gloucester will be able to apply to the state for a license. So we're, we're there now. And will the revenue for that that the city receives from that be up to the city to spend? Well, we yes. Or is it so, restricted so, in certain ways? So the state will charge a 17% sales tax on retail uh, recreational marijuana, and the cities will get back 3% of that. And the other 14% goes to the state? The state, yeah. Which And some of that will maybe eventually yeah. find we'll, its we'll way back to their their right? We'll well, how their, is it? Exactly. <laughs> how is it going to find its way back to Gloucester? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that 3% into the general fund, no specific. Uh, no specific earmark, earmark yeah. except the fact to recognize that we will have costs for oversight, um, law enforcement, uh, health oversight, and so forth will we'll be city costs. We don't know what those really are. We have some estimates. We don't know what the revenues really are going to be. We have some estimates, but... Um, is that similar to how, say, liquor is taxed? That yes. The tax, it's, it's a very similar Pretty much structure. the same, yeah. yep. Well, new times ahead. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Catherine, what topic are you bringing to the table? Well, um, I think with this year's weather events of, uh, in Puerto Rico and Houston and now most recently in uh, the Carolinas, I have been thinking about um, our coastal resiliency. And we know uh, ourselves what happened, I think it was in March, when yeah. we had these tidal surges and we saw all of, of Rogers Street underwater mm -hmm. and a lot of neighborhoods were uh, flooded. It caught me thinking about, well, what is Gloucester doing to prepare for these um, rising sea levels and uh, to make our coast more resilient? And um, uh, I took a look at Gloucester just, I think in April, the city of Gloucester through its planning department um, hosted a coastal vulnerability workshop and uh, tried to identify a, a bunch of vulnerabilities that that we've had but I guess the question is what you know what now where where do we go go from here um, they've identified some uh, critical infrastructure like our water treatment plant on Essex Avenue um, some of our, our roadways the causeway or roadways out of Gloucester some of our neighborhoods um, have some serious flooding issues, particularly Lanesville or Riverdale or, you know, the back shore. They also identified some strengths that we have. We have a local hospital. We have a professional fire department. I thought it was uh, interesting that they noted we have some grocery stores on high ground. <laughs> yeah. um, we have a good water supply. We have a ham radio community. We have an emergency communication. Mm -hmm. But important. at this point, like, what are we doing but for? It's a little scary to think that we're, we're thinking that we might need these things. Yeah, I you think know, that. A, somebody's I, building a house near me, and it's up on concrete stilts. Yes. And I met the homeowner one day when I was out walking my dog, and he said to me, doesn't look so funny now, does it, after yeah. the winter? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And also seeing what places like the Carolinas are going through right now. I mean, who would have thought that they would have experienced uh, such a strong storm? But yeah, And inland, too, which was we saw that uh, a few years ago in Vermont with Hurricane Irene. 
down yeah. in inland oh, right. hurricane. Oh, yes. so right, yeah, Vermont was devastated. Vermont was yes. devastated. I driving and up there yeah. not long after. The Carolinas um, are going through both a coastal uh, storm and an inland storm with flooding. So what what can we expect for Gloucester? We, right. We've seen the future. It's here. Right. So I think there's like two components, right? There's like the emergency response to the immediate threat, but how do we make ourselves less less vulnerable? And I think like with housing, I think with with coastal resiliency, we need to look to zoning and start to, you know, do we rate, do we increase the building height so people can build higher? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do we, you know, encourage, do zoning so that we are encouraging people not to build in vulnerable areas mm -hmm. or to right. build back from our, you know, marsh and barrier beaches? I just, um, yeah. I think that this, at, what was made clear about this workshop is that we need to do a lot more planning mm -hmm. and studying. Yeah, maybe we're we need, a little bit behind. It feels like we're behind, I yeah. think. Um, so, and so people don't want to be told they can't build a house somewhere. Right. right. But at the same time, then they, they turn around and there is a societal cost is a, because they expect help rebuilding or... Yeah, I think I read a, a statistic. Or to be saved in the middle of the To be rescued if right. they need to be. Yeah. Like, I think it was just that Massachusetts is one of 10 states in which they have a 70% like rebuild. Like we keep, re, we keep letting these buildings mm -hmm. be knocked down and rebuild again. Yes. Well, it seems to be that we need to have maybe a little more um, forward thinking about even the rebuild, if you're going to build, build it up, right. build it. Yeah. So, know, Paul, what do you what do you think so, about this issue? Yeah. So right now, um, there are federal requirements about the rebuild that the that the the living space must be a certain number of feet over the hundred foot the hundred year high tide. And if you're in the velocity zone, yeah. which is the part which is the part of the coast where that becomes inundated with a wind event. You know, there's other requirements like that. Then you layer on that on top. On, that is now layered on top of our zoning requirements for building heights and so forth and setbacks, which we have not yet addressed, which we, I think it's Catherine points out, that's the kind of thing we should be starting to think about now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Peter? Oh, no, no. I didn't have anything else. You didn't have anything else to <laughs> no. add to that no. one? <laughs> um, it's, it's such a critical issue. You know, we're, we're a coastal community and uh, sea level rise is going to impact us here, even in the north north shore of Massachusetts where we're a little bit different than the Cape. Right. But um, we we saw the flooding and we're seeing it now in the Carolinas. So, And I, and I wonder if a hundred year it's no longer really the right marker. We've had the right. third right. thousand year flood yeah, yeah. in the in country this <laughs> right. year. Right. So, right. Yeah. So, so we had three instances where uh, our main arterial street, Washington Street, was flooded at the Riverdale Mills mm. um, yeah. for a couple of hours. Now, it was a tidal event, so the tide came up and went down. But for a couple of hours, three times, it was impassable to vehicles. Mm -hmm. So... You know, so, so our, a fire truck couldn't exactly. Get it. So our fire department has now had to think through what happens when that happens because it's not if it happens. It's now happened three times. So if they yeah. have an emergency call and they know that there's water over the road, they got to go a different way, and 
So they've got a plan for that. Yeah. Or, or we have to call Rockport and see if they're not busy. If they can yeah. come yeah, That's right. Which they probably Which they might be. Well, Rockport so, has its own flooding so issues. Catherine mentioned, you know, there's all these, the, these are, there's a lots of items like that. Like having the ham radio group is It's actually, a, yeah, it's a real bonus to us. Mm -hmm. hey, one um, of the things that I wanted to uh, talk about in relationship to flooding events is um, how are the communities, how, how are how, how is Gloucester and neighborhoods um, looking at uh, community well, uh, I don't know, connection plans, making sure that the el that they know where uh, elders are living mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the most vulnerable populations, is there kind of a neighborhood plan in place that gets triggered when an event like, ha when an event like this happens so that you know where to go and check on folks because it didn't happen in the Carolinas and there are a lot of elders who um, uh, are in a difficult situation right now right. whether their house is flooded and they haven't been rescued and so I yeah, think when about we that. Get, when we get robocalled when there's an event the mayor always says look in on the seniors in your neighborhood. Right, I like but to see it. That's not a formal but, plan to but, check on the most vulnerable right. to make I sure. I think there's that a, okay. a few neighborhoods that have actually sort of established mm -hmm. that. I, I, I think maybe in Anasquam or uh, maybe Magnolia, they have sort of established this informal neighbor to neighbor. There was, and I don't know if it's still active, the community emergency response team, which was run through a grant grant program through the emergency management um, <clears throat> position, where they were getting volunteers and training volunteers to be that neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor response and that they would either be contacted through, you know, um, uh, the emergency response system or, but I, I don't know if that's continued or how formal it, it's been. It needs to be revived. And you're right, there are some um, ad hoc neighborhood groups that do just what you've described, Maureen, and it's something that we really need to ramp up because it's something that, rose up in some communities, but we need to provide them with a template on how to do it in all yeah. the communities. Yeah, but and it's really a very, in, in remote parts of the country where you you are not going to be able to count on emergency response teams, they have very well developed mm -hmm. systems of neighborhood, mm -hmm. neighbor to neighbor. So it's, it's we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Correct. But, no, yeah. and I, I think there's a, this is a great community for that. It's one mm -hmm. of the things I've, in the 20 years I've lived here, I've always felt that way, that the community really looks out for each other. So there's there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of informal. I mean, I know in my neighborhood people watch out, and if there were an event, we'd check in on people that we knew might need some help. Yeah, it's something that we do. We do instinctively. Kind of, we do here. instinctively, yeah. But I would, I'm, I'm looking at a plan. We, we do need right. to have those community-based, neighborhood-based, mm -hmm. or street-based plans, not necessarily an entire neighborhood. Right. Particularly for, as you said, those vulnerable um, populations. Yeah. yeah, I have a 92-year-old woman who lives next to me. I keep an eye on her, but in, mm -hmm. in an emergency, um, I would check on her, but if I wasn't there, if would somebody else? Town, yeah. <clears throat> would right. somebody else know? Mm -hmm. Know to check on her? Um, and we, we just have a, like a, a minute left in the show, and I wanted to touch on uh, Paul's issue of Volunteers, and I'm sorry we only have um, a minute, but volunteers in the city, and just briefly, if you, the three of you, could touch on that quickly. And um, Paul, sure. what did you want to? It was a great lead in for the volunteering on uh, checking on the elders. Um, the city of Gloucester has 30 
uh, boards and commissions, uh, ranging from the Zoning Board of Appeals and the mm -hmm. Planning Board down to the Animal Advisory Committee and everything in between and the Cemetery Advisory Committee. They're all staffed by, um, by volunteer, citizen volunteers, and we couldn't run the city without them. And so it's something that uh, we want to make sure people know about and we want to encourage people to uh, find out about and, and join in. Yeah, yeah, I think a big think part like, of what makes the city work are these volunteer boards, and I think of myself as reasonably aware of what's going on, and I had no idea the number was 30. I knew it wasn't just the city council and the school <laughs> committee, but I would have guessed a lot smaller number if you'd asked me. Yeah, and I can only say that having served on a couple of different of the, of the city um, boards and commissions, that it is a really enriching experience to meet a lot of great uh, varied people. You learn a lot about the city that you had never really knew before, and it's a great... This, these boards really need the very, you know, we have a lot of talented people here, and so mm -hmm. right. to get those talents and to have people offer those talents is really uh, very valuable. Yeah, and it's fun. And it's fun. And it's fun. Well, Paul Lundberg, Catherine Schlichty, and Peter Doling, thank you so much for joining me on Cape Ann Report. I hope that you'll tune in next time. In the meantime, take care. <laughs>